All right, Jeff Hugel, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, good, Hawking. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Good. Now, from for for now on out, I'm going to call you Skip uh, or Skippy because yeah, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, where actually did that originate? Where did the nickname Skippy come from? Um, mate, I think I, I picked it up when I was at school. Um, and then obviously, uh, just from there, I, um, you know, when I, I joined the squad at, at, uh, in Redcliffe with Ken Wood, um, as an 11 or a 12 year old kid, geez, it was so long ago. It just sort of, it just sort of stuck from there. I remember he asked me one day if, you know, if I had a nickname or what, what some of the kids at school were calling me and I, I sort of fell into that trap and then from there it just sort of stuck, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it stuck for sure. That's the only, that's the only thing. <laughs> I can't even call you by your first name. Sometimes I think, you know, what is his name? Oh, that's right. Skip. Yeah. Yeah. Every um, now and then I still sign off on emails with Skip. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, where are you right now? Where are you, where are you coming from? Yeah. So I am in Singapore. Um, so I, I moved over here 18 months ago and set up a, uh, learn to swim business that, um, also is involved with, uh, adult, adult coaching. And also, uh, we've run swim camps and clinics through Asia. Um, so it's been a, yeah, it's been a good transition, um, stepping away from Oz. Yeah, mate. I, uh, I didn't even know until kind of you reached out and we kind of chatted a little bit, but, um, but you've always been one of those guys that has always found a way to kind of find their feet you know like you've always been entrepreneurial and and always been somebody that has has really good connections and you're always just moving but um it's nice to see you over there and, and uh, being successful in singapore it's a, it's a great place yeah it uh i mean it hasn't been easy there's no doubt about that i think um you know it's it's one of those things that i've always sort of looked at is especially with swimming and, and and especially in the era that we grew up in is that if everyone's going one way um, how do you stand out from the crowd and try and do something a little bit different, right? I mean, when you sort of look back, at, especially at, you know, 20 years ago now, we look back and you've got a team that was just full of amazing athletes, right? There was, there was obviously um, Ian, there was Hacky, Thorpey, uh, sorry, so Thorpey, Hacky, yeah. uh, Klimi, um, you know, Susie, Sam, so Susie O'Neill, Sam Riley, Liesl Jones, even the likes of Libby Trickets, um, you know, Brooke Hansen, Matt Welsh, there was uh, yeah. Daniel Kowalski, Kieran Perkins. I mean, there were yeah. so many stars that were that were obviously around in that era. And it was uh, it was one of those things where obviously if you weren't winning gold medals or breaking world records, it was sort of, it was definitely hard to sort of stand out and, and do something a little bit different, right? And um, you know, I think I sort of learned at a young age that that's that's just sort of what you got to do. And and um, you know, one of the reasons why I came over here. Uh, especially to Asia, is that I, I just saw a lot of opportunities, um, you know, and, and a lot of opportunities to try and do something a little bit different. Yeah, well, that's awesome, man. I'm glad to hear. And yeah, and you kind of brought up um, your past a little bit with Ken Wood. And I think the first time, I don't know when the first time we actually met, you know, but mm. I just know that the first time I heard about you, you were this kid that was living with your coach. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time. Like, I, it was just, it was, it was weird for me, but you two had this incredible relationship, you and Ken Wood. Tell us about how that kind of came about and, and um, what that, that was like. Yeah, sure. So I was about, uh, how old was I? It must have been just before my 12th birthday. So it was just, just, um, just before my 12th birthday, I had, uh, there was a competition. There was obviously, there was a Queensland state titles. Um, so if we go back probably to October, October 1991, um, 
there's this swim meet up in Mackay, which is where, where I grew up and where my swimming career really started. Um, and, and every year a team from Brisbane, uh, which was Ken's squad, would, would travel a thousand kilometres north um, and he would use it as a bit of a scouting opportunity to pick up or, or see what if there was any young kids or emerging talent that's coming up through the market. And um, I remember in October, my, my parents had a, a chat to Ken. Uh, they didn't really tell me anything about it. And then a couple of months later, I raced at the Queensland State Champs um, as, as a 11-year-old kid and, and picked up a couple of medals. And not long after that, I got a phone call from Ken and he basically asked me if there was a, a, a you know, if I wanted to move down and, and to join his squad in Brisbane. And, and the moment that he, he rang me up and I picked up the phone or he asked me, you know, my answer was yes straight away. Uh, I knew that as a young kid, if I was going to take my swimming to the next level, I, I had to be involved in a squad that was was obviously of a, a, a larger size and 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 with better competition. And um, you know, about, about twelve months after that, my father passed away. So after I moved down to to Brisbane, so it was I was stuck in a bit of a catch twenty two. It was either I moved back to Mackay um, and go back to the country, or I stay in this environment, this positive environment where obviously success breeds success, right? And, and I think that you know, this is this is when I look back at it, one of one of the reasons why I think Queensland swimming for so long has been so dominant is because the difference between uh, being an 11-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid at state-level competition to being an Olympian um, was basically 15 metres away, right? Like you had kids that were at that junior development, you had kids that were Olympic medalists, but they were all training in the same squad and in the same pool. So you sort of knew that if you wanted to, to take it to the elite level, all you had to do was follow the pathway and hopefully year after year you start to improve. So, um, you know, that's basically how I, I not fell into that squad. But, um, you know, I knew that the, that the pathway from state champion to um, to obviously the opportunity of swimming at the Olympics was um, was in that one squad. Yeah, mate, incredible. The Australia's, Australia's in, you know, a strange place because, like, if you think about it, there's not that many people that live there. It's a huge country. Um, but it seems like they're, they've always been just obsessed with swimming for whatever reason. Uh, you know, I think it came on – we've had a, an amazing history. Um, but for me, it's always been a Queensland where you're from, the state of Queensland. And most people don't know that the state itself is kind of like, you know, the the – the north um, eastern part of the country, right? That's, um, that's correct. Yeah, the most eastern part. Oh, uh, yeah, northeastern part. That's yeah. right. Yeah, but it's just a state. breeding ground, right? Like for for swimming talent. Like the amount mm. of talent that have come out of Queensland is just ridiculous. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I'm, I'm not too sure. I think I, I think when you look back at it, I mean, just to give put it in perspective, at that time, I mean, or even now, I think. Just roughly in that southeast Queensland area, I think now it's approximately maybe four million people. It was probably half that ten or twenty years ago. Um, but but basically, if you, if we look back at it from and the way that we we sort of looked at it from when that the Australian Institute of Sport was set up in 1980, um, basically between 1980 and 2004 um, or 2000 actually. Um, all Olympic medalists in swimming pretty much came out of Queensland. So yeah. in 1984, you had uh, John, John Sieben in the 200 mm. Butterfly. Mm. 88, you had Duncan Armstrong in the 200 Freestyle. 92 was Kieran Perkins in the 1500 Freestyle. Mm. 
96 was Kieran and Susie. Uh, in the Susie won the the 200 butterfly, uh, and then Kieran won the, uh, 1500. the 1500 freestyle, mm. and then obviously it wasn't until uh, the the Grady and Thorpe came around in 2000 that that it sort of broke that curse. But from there, you had Susie O'Neill won the 200 freestyle, and uh, Hacky also won the 1500 as well. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why. It was sort of a, as you said, it was a place where success bred success, but you had amazing coaches around that time as well. So obviously John Carew was there, uh, the late John Carew, um, my old coach, Ken Wood, Dennis Cottrell, who produces, you know, mm. amazing distance swimmers. Um, you know, Scotty Volkers was there at the time. Uh, Michael Bowl comes from the area as well. So, yeah, it's a, I, I don't know, Hawkey. It's, it was just one of those places where, I think the environment is right. The weather is right as well. And the ease of getting around was so much easier than, mm. than getting around Sydney. Um, I, I think that you, when I sort of look back at it, a, a lot of people that come out of Sydney or the Sydney environment or their parents as well either come from white-collar sort of backgrounds, right? So I think the, the kids went to, with, with my little bits of involvement with the sport, it's, it's it, the kids go to a lot of prestigious schools or high mm. schools. Yeah. Um, but for a lot of the parents, you know, the, the thought of spending eight, 10, 12 hours at Homebush on a Saturday and a Sunday, um, yeah. you know, it was not an option for a lot of parents. I mean, they, they worked hard, they traveled a lot. So they usually they'd want to spend their weekends at their beach houses in Palm beach or away on the coast together as a family, as opposed to wanting to spend the weekend out at Homebush. um, you know, watching swimming. Yeah, that's a pretty good perspective. I hadn't thought about that actually. Yeah. Like, so I grew up in Sydney and that's kind of the way it was. They didn't want to spend the time. My parents didn't want to be at the pool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Especially with amazing weather, right? Like, I mean, yeah. Sydney is a beautiful place. It's one of the most beautiful cities I've ever lived in in the whole world. And I've yeah. got a lot of fond memories from there. But if you, if you look at, you know, having to spend the weekend, um, indoors at an indoor aquatic center that's yeah. you know all the way inland from <laughs> from the beautiful beaches of Sydney. Yeah. yeah, you can sort of see why parents were like, well, look, if you want to go, you can spend it out there. But you know, we're going up to the beach house if you want to come up with us, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. But um, but may we spend many years together? And I'm trying to rack my my brain to think of a time where I saw you sprint some freestyle or some backstroke or some breaststroke or just something else. I can't, I can't picture it at all. Anytime I ever picture you swimming, it's just this gorgeous butterfly. Like, was that just something that was in you from day one? Yeah, pr pretty much. I was, um, yeah, I was, I was sort of, yeah, and you know, with butterfly as well, I, I guess I was sort of born with it, right? Like you've, but it, it, it's funny. I think from a rhythm and timing point of view, that's where it just sort of naturally just came together. I think with, with freestyle, every time I tried to go hard or fast with it, it just sort of, everything just fell apart, right? But um, with Butterfly, it was just easy to keep the momentum and the timing and, um, and things just sort of came together pretty well. Did you have to think or was it, was it very natural to you? Like, did it, sometimes when people were messing with your stroke at all, did that just mess with your feeling of how you wanted to swim fly? Um, I, not, I didn't really have to think too much. I think yeah. the, the older I get now and the more I start to look back on my career, it's one of those things, unfortunately, I, I, I did take it for granted. Um, oh. You know, I mean, I just enjoyed the racing, the racing aspect of it, right? That's the part. That, and, and obviously just enjoyed being around my mates and the way I always looked at it. And even, even in the second part of my career was that, to, to just try and keep it simple, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you, 
eight blokes are standing at one end of the pool and you're trying to race everyone from one end to the other, right? So no, no different to when we were kids growing up. I think mm. that's as simple as I tried to look at it and, and, and tried to keep it. I think that, um, you know, if I was swimming and tried to focus too much on technique or body position or everything else like that, it just, everything just sort of fell apart, right? Because you, you can overanalyze it. I think I tried to keep it as simple as possible. And, and as you know, it was, um, you know, power and drive sort of came from that, that from, core that that sort of core area and you know obviously trying to keep a neutral spine and drive with the crown of your head and keep your hips up and keep your stroke long right i think that's as that's as simple as it needs to be it's um you know there's there's so much other things we need to think about in the race and 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 i remember um you know if anything else as well especially in the back end 50 the only two words i would ever sort of say to myself was long and strong right keep mm. your stroke long and keep it strong and hopefully then keep you can keep your hips up and go from there yes i wouldn't say that you're a, per, a person that wasted their talent by any means but do you feel like you didn't maximize your gifts sometimes so, sometimes but i think that's that's one of those things that a lot of people can sort of say at, at certain times right i think um you know this and, and i was fortunate i had two parts of my career um, you know, I was one of the lucky ones. Um, I, I think in the first part, what, what was amazing, um, if, if we take a step back, is, is that, you know, being a 13 or 14 year old kid when Sydney won the bid for the Olympics, mm. um, and, and you could see the shift in the momentum, especially mm. within the team and, and the athletes at that sort of time, everyone just thought ahead and said, right, well, in 2000, I'm going to be at this age and, and that's going to be the right age to be swimming internationally and hopefully I'll have enough experience at that point in time. And, and I just remember thinking, and I remember on the first, first few teams that, that I started to go away on, and, excuse me, some of the sprint camps or, you know, freestyle, uh, freestyle butterfly sprint camps, which is where we started to meet each other. Yeah. You know, we would go away on these camps and, and you could feel the vibe and the atmosphere within the team, I think around 94, 95. And, and obviously a lot of it had to do with, with Don Talbot, right? So 94, 95, we used to have these team meetings and he'd pull us in and, you know, he'd give us these pep talks and, you know, the, the, and obviously tell us that we're, we're good enough to take it to the Americans or we're good enough to take it to uh, the rest of the world. And, you know, we've obviously got the right hunger and the right team, and, and but we had to start to believe in ourselves. And I remember at that point in time, you sort of had about maybe 20% of those athletes sort of think, oh, yeah, okay, maybe we can do this or maybe we couldn't, right? But then by the time we got to around 97, uh, 98, uh, you know, Pampax 98, 99, you, you pretty much had like 5% of the team that just didn't believe, right? And, and, and that, that in itself, those guys got weeded out pretty quick because whenever you'd go away on these training camps, the exciting part was I remember that you come in and you talk about, you know, some of the test sets or some of the things that people would do and, you know, you've got these amazing sets and then you've got guys like Hacky and Thorpey and then they're pushing a 200 freestyle, they're pushing one minute fifties at the end of these seven, 200 step tests. And all everyone would be talking about is, holy smokes, how fast is that? And, you know, I get goosebumps now whenever I think about it. Right. And then it's like, Oh, so-and-so did this or so-and-so was pushing this. And it really created that environment where if you didn't step up to the mark, unfortunately you're in a position of getting cut. Right. And that's, as we know, once it, it sort of gets to that elite level, um, and in your your event as well, right? Unless you finish one or two, you had to secure your spot. Mm. You know, if you finish third, it's thanks for coming. And yeah. 
and and I mean, you're in a, obviously one of the best 50 meter sprinters that were around. It, you, you didn't have the 100 freestyle to back up in, right? So you didn't have that relay opportunity or option. It was like do what you had to do to secure that spot, and then everything else sort of fell into place from there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of want to pull back on what I said a second ago in terms of like wasting your talent. You were always one of these guys that worked your ass off in the pool man like you worked hard you know the the reason why i say that is because you also like to party hard on the other side of it you know yeah. like you're you're a full yeah. full throttle kind of guy you know? <laughs> but you always had you always had so much charisma did you did you know that you had a lot of charisma at the time or is it just is it just who you are no nah, nah, it just just was who i was right and i think i think from that that side of it it was um you know i think i was i, I I sort of, I, I definitely underestimated the whole lot, right? I, to me, it was just about swimming and having fun and just being with my mates and, and see you could push each other the hardest, right? See you could do that, right? In training or whatever. And that's that's what I just loved the most about that era was, um, and about training as well, um, you know, but from the charisma side, no, I think it was, I think what I sort of learned in life as well is that when you, when you lose a parent at a young age, you, mm. you recognise it and you realise that, um, life is actually pretty beautiful, as hard as it is at times, right? And um, you, you know, I sort of realised that every day there's an opportunity there, and, and, and that opportunity is to go out there and try and do the best you can with whatever whatever circumstance that you're in. Um, and I still try and live my life to that, that that sort of motto today, right? Because as we know, I mean, you look at some a lot of the challenges that everyone are going through at the moment, whether it's we're all in lockdown because of the the COVID virus. Um, you know, but, but um, you know, some of us are doing a lot better than others. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, the sun is always going to shine. And, and regardless of what we do, I mean, we all trip over our feet and make mistakes, but it's about how can we go out there and just pick it up again and, and do what we have to do to hopefully achieve the goals that we want to achieve. Yeah, yeah, it's true, man. You were one of these guys in swimming that ended up, you did make a lot of money. You, you were making some cash there at one stage. When, yeah. when did that first kick in? Like, what was the swim for you that kind of put you over the edge where, where the whole of Australia was kind of in love with you? Yeah, I, don't, I can't remember if it was around the Com, Com Games 98. 98, so around that okay. 90, yeah. 90, you know, Pampax 97, Com Games 98, mm-hmm. around that, that sort of era, I think. Um, I, and I think that's because... That's I think that was the first first meet that I went away and, and won obviously a couple of gold medals at Com Games um, and stuff. But um, yeah, sort of it, it was like that era was a, a really different time. And, and, and when I look back and, and sort of try and explain it to a lot of people, you know, it was pre 9-11. Um, so security was full on, but it was nowhere near as as full on as it is today yeah it, it was pre-gfc so corporate dollars just went out the door and, and no one had to write a check or care about anything mm. right it was pre-high-speed internet so the only place that people watch sport was um at, at a venue or at a pub or you watched it at home mm. and then it was also pre-social media right mm. so you could run an absolute mark and enjoy <laughs> life and know that your career wouldn't be over in two minutes right so it was, a, it was just a different era altogether yeah. um, you know it's hard, hard to imagine that obviously 20 years ago that's that's where it had it came in but but also too that's where obviously the professionalism in or professional athletes really started to to get paid in swimming i think 
you know, Kieran Perkins really paved the way yeah. or, or probably the first person was Lisa Curry-Kenny, right? Mm. Between those two, um, those two really sort of um, put swimming on the map and, and obviously with, it, with Sydney being a home Olympics um, and so much funding that was around at that point in time, it was, it was definitely a really good place to be. And I, I remember, obviously, another thing, you know, we used to go away on these training camps and, you know, we used to be based in, I, was, I grew up in Brisbane, that's where I did all my training. So when we did these training camps, we would go to places like the Sunshine Coast, which is really from where I lived, a 40-minute drive, right? But for people from Sydney or from Melbourne or anywhere else, it was a really beautiful environment, you know, by the beach and, yeah. you know, it's a nice spot or everything like that. But then um, as soon as Sydney won the bid for the Olympics and funding went up, we would then be going to places like Singapore and Hawaii for our training yeah. camp, right? So they just couldn't spend the money fast enough, right? So it was one of those things that, that worked really well in our favour and, yeah, it was just a different environment full stop, right? Yeah, but I mean, you had management, um, and then you know Ken Wood was your was your coach. Your, your father had passed away, and and this money is pouring in. What are they saying to you as the money's coming in? Was there anyone um, putting restrictions on you, or giving you advice, or like what was going on around that time? Was just was this just you know this bank account? You were like, damn, I can do whatever yeah, I want with this. Let it go. <laughs> yeah, a, bit, a, a mixture of both. I mean, I, I was quite fortunate. I I, I invested pretty well. Um, at, the, at, at that point in time, uh, which is good. And then, you know, like everyone, when you're a young, young kid, 19, 18, 19, 20, and you've got some, some, some big dollars coming at you, obviously, um, yeah. yeah, you can spend it pretty well as well, right? So, I, I mean, I definitely had a lot of fun. There's no doubt about that, um, you know, but, but I guess, um, you know, if I, if I had my time again, I, I probably wouldn't have spent as much as I spent. <laughs> um, but uh, but, but that, that being... That being said, as well, um, you know, I don't, I don't regret a lot of the opportunities that I had throughout that point of time as well. Yeah. Now I was talking to Clemmy the other day, Michael Clem, and he was saying that, you know, if he was to think of one person who was his biggest rival, um, he actually named you. Yeah, um, right. You know, he said <laughs> he said Skippy was the guy that I was always going head to head with. You know. And yeah. So, um, do you see it that way as well? Yeah, it was well. I think because it was our individual spots, right? I think, I think that's and and that hundred butterfly at that point of time. I mean, we were the two of us were swimming fifty two lows. I mean, he was swimming fifty one nine, and then basically from there, I, I, I mean, it was it was a tough one, right? Even even still, like I, it was. Uh, I, I, look, short answer, yes, absolutely. Mm. Uh, and and that that hundred butterfly was was basically it was my only race. It was the one that I I, mm. I, I knew that I could qualify at the Olympics at because even still today, the fifties aren't around, right? And yeah. and they didn't they didn't really pop into everything until Worlds two thousand and one, which was the first fifty butterfly they they put in at those major international meets. But um, you know, Clemmy was the guy that, and he was the guy that everyone wanted to beat as well, right? Because he was so dominant in freestyle, the 100, the 200 freestyle. He had the relays and then also the 100 butterfly as well. So he was the guy that, um, you know, we all wanted to, 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 to chase after. And he was the, the guy that, in my personal opinion, that, that, um, that, that, that obviously I wanted to chase after as well. Um, and, um, and, and, yeah, we had some amazing races throughout our career. It was, it was pretty good. It was either one, one competition he'd get up and then I'd get silver or third or the next one I'd get up and he'd get silver or third. And 
the third person in that equation that everyone sort of forgets about and, and the guy that really sort of trumped us, especially when it came to the Sydney Olympics, was the Swedish swimmer, Lars Frölander. Yeah. Right? And I think between us, the three of us, you know, we had some really good rivalries and competition throughout throughout that era. And, um, yeah, there's some really good racing if you if you go back and look at history. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't a uh, just a pushover to get on the teams either. You had to get through Adam Pine and some other guys that could really that's, swim too, you know? It, yeah, that's right. And, and you know, Scotty Miller was, was oh, floating Scotty around. Yeah. You know, Scotty <laughs> was floating around. He was always a threat. You got Adam Pine was there, Scott yeah. Goodman, yeah. Um, you know, who was a, he was a 200 butterfly world, world short course, uh, uh, sorry, yeah. short course world record holder as well. So, yeah, yeah. you know, Billy Kirby was floating around as well. So you that's had... Right. You know, you had five or six guys that were all sub fifty-two swimmers in in 90, right? So, um, as you know, if you're if you're going, if you look at it from a from a um, from a, a velocity point of view, if you're swimming yeah. at two meters per second, right, half a second is it comes down to a touch, right? So yeah. it's um, you know, you, you, and, and especially with butterfly, right? You, you're either if you've got a stroke stroke length of two two point one two point two meters per stroke, I mean that can that really throws off the distance between whether you come first in your race or you come fifth in your race. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you and Clemmy, um, obviously big rivals and going head to head and a lot of stuff. How did you remain friends through it all? Like, was there a time? Was there any bad blood at any time, or was it always just kind of like you know we leave it in the pool? Yeah, I think. Well, I'd always thought we left it in the pool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, man. I think so too. Yeah, it seemed <laughs> yeah, that way yeah. to me. I just don't know how you did it. But yeah, I don't know. Well, because it, it just, it, it just sort of, to me, it just, it, it is what it is, right? I think that that's that's the way I sort of looked at it as well. It's, um, you know, ultimately, it took me a long time to work this stuff or learn this stuff as well. Is that especially when you're growing up and you're a kid and it's the be all end all. I, I, I think one of the biggest things, lessons I learned through the sport is that there's more to life than just swimming unfortunately i think that that's um and it's not till you get a little bit of experience and you go to some of those big meets that you realize that it's just it is just a race and it is just eight guys from one end of the pool ultimately all trying to do the best that they can and and um you know i always i, I always saw Clemmy as a friend and um and he still is a very good friend to me today and and um you know and that's if it wasn't me that could win the gold, I was always hoping it was him because it was, you know, you always wanted to try and win that gold for your nation and, and hopefully um, put you in a better position on the point score, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, talk us through that Sydney race, mate. There was obviously a lot of expectation and pressure on you and Clemmy. Was Did you guys think that it was just between you two or did you know that Lars was a contender? Yeah, I think that's that's probably where, when we look back at it now, part of our inexperience came into that situation, right? We, we, we sort of focused on just the two of us and and not focused on the rest of the race. And I, I think, um, look, and I, I can't really, oh, I definitely can't speak on, on Clemmy's behalf because I don't know what he was thinking at that time. But, um, you know, I, I, remember, I remember walking into the final and, and, you know, I had an amazing, amazing day in that semi-final the day before. And I remember going to the pool in the semi-final and, I was doing my warm up and I sat down and and you know my, my coach Ken Wood said to me at the time he said he said oh look how are you feeling and and the hundred butterflies like 50, 53, right we're not on till day six 
So we've got to sit that whole time and sort of mm. wait until things sort of come through. And, and, you know, by day six, it becomes Groundhog Day. And I remember being in the warm-up on day, uh, on the, the final, uh, the semi-final night. And I remember looking at Ken and just saying, oh, look, I just feel terrible, right? Like I was really flat. I didn't want to be there. Yeah. You know, I had the biggest headache. I was just like, oh, look, I'm pretty over it today, to tell you the truth, right? And the look on his face was just an absolute shock. And I was like, oh, well, look, the only way we'll just, yes, let's just get through this race, right? Let's just just do what we have to do and just make sure we just get a spot in the final. And, and that was never, for me, that was never a, a, an issue of being in the final was never a yeah. um, was never a doubt, right? That yeah. doubt never came into my mind. So it was yeah. about then just executing all the little things, right? And, yeah. you know, I just, just went through the motions. And I finished that semi-final with a time of 51.9, which at the time was the fastest ever in a, in a race, um, just off the world record. Mm. Um, and to me, I was totally shocked by it because with 15 metres to go, I just backed off, right? I was like, holy smokes, I'm in front here. I'll just sort of switch off. Yeah. But the 24 hours leading into the final was was probably the longest 24 hours in my life, right? Mm. And you know what it's like once you get to those big meets. You just overanalyze it and think it yeah. and think it and think it. And it's even harder to stop because, you know, when you do all your visualisation techniques and the preparation stuff to get ready for the finals, right, that... that you know, 50 seconds is all your race goes for. And, and to, to have 50, to try and calm your mind out for 50 seconds to not think about your race, it just, it's a hard thing to do. But I remember getting to the final and and pretty nervous and I warmed up and, and, and look, the, the only thing I pretty much wanted my coach to do at the time was to sit down and, and just say, look, this is the race plan. This is all we need to do. And, and, and do you think that, you know, it was it was one of those things where even though I'd swum the race a million times before, I, I got there and I absolutely just froze, right? And um, I remember talking to Ken and and the words the words that, and and all he said was before the race was this is it, son. You know what you need to do. But deep down inside, I was sitting there just freaking out, going, mm. actually no, I don't. Can you just remind me what I need <laughs> to do again and just have something to focus on, right? Yeah. So, you know, the walk from the last chat with the coach all the way down to the marshalling room, I was just like, right, okay, just right, let's try and bring it back to the basics, bring it back to basics and, you know, whatever you do, just don't miss the start, don't miss the start, you know, in psychology, right? Whatever you think starts to happen, right? Yeah. So as the starter said, take your marks and go, you know, I just froze for that split second on the blocks and, yeah. and for that split seconds was, was the difference, obviously, from from you know enough to win a race or, or lose a race and uh, you know the upside is when i look back at it i still got a, a bronze medal at the olympics which is quite amazing because as we both know you know you don't get a finalist ribbon for for, uh, for swimming at the olympics right oh, yeah. so to be able to come away <laughs> with yeah. a bronze was was still pretty good uh, yeah. and a silver and bronze at my, my very first home olympics or very first olympics um, yeah. you know it was pretty special so um you, you know, the, the one thing that, um, you know, as we said, we just underestimated and that comes down to experiences was, was you know, when I look back at it now is, is recognising that, that it's more than more than just, just you that's in the race. Um, but even though at the end of the day, the only thing you can focus on and control is, is what happens in between your, your lane, right? Because you can't control what the guy in lane six is doing or what the guy in lane three is doing or what the guy in lane seven is doing. Right. The only thing you can focus on and control is, is what happens in your lane. So, you know, it's about just um, staying focused on the job you have to do and, and, um, and just going from there. 
Yeah. Yeah. You, you talked about a couple of things that are super interesting to me. You talked about freezing and pressure and those sorts of things. And why do you think Olympic pressure is different? I mean, I, I've got an idea. I, I kind of know, but I want to hear from your perspective. Why is it that the Olympic pressure is different than any other pressure? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, um, well, I think it's, it, it, it's, 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 the, it's the tip of the mountain, right? Yeah. Like it's the, it's the one that comes around every four years and, and it's the one that's got so much history. Uh, you know what? I think we're over a hundred years of of, uh, of Olympics, and you know it's it's one of those things that that doesn't come by every single day. So uh, obviously that's that's one element, one component, uh, one one part to it. And are those things crossing your mind in the in that twenty four hours that you said is the longest twenty four hours? Are you thinking those things? Mm, no, I don't think I, I don't think about that. I think you know. And sort of what I what I sort of learned over the years as well is if if you look at your life as a timeline, right? Like this is when you're born, and this is hopefully some up somewhere up here is when yeah. you think you're going to pass away. Yeah. You know that on this dot right here of this timeline, right here on this day, um, you know, I we, you know, the Sydney Olympics started at it was the opening ceremony was September 15th, so you knew on day six, which was roughly around the 21st of September. Um, was the heats and the semi and day seven was going to be the final of the hundred butterfly. Mm. Um, so your whole focus zooms into that one dot, mm. right? You, as an athlete, you don't really care what happens on the other side. You try and you have so much, um, so much um, other things going on. Um, but at that point of time, the whole focus is on that one dot on your career. And that's how you swim or compete, whether it's in the 53 or the hundred butterfly. Um, and, and you know you're never going to have that time again. And I think that's where a lot of the pressure actually comes down to it. Um, when I look back in this, uh, with the things that I learned in the first part of my career to the second part of my career, um, I, I was obviously at the end of the day, I think the most important thing is you can't substitute experience, right? I think you can, because you can be the, what, what you give away in youth, um, you actually make up an experience, right? So I think that, um, when I look at the second part of my career, um, and I started, I, I, it was 10 years later, but I swam actually half a second faster than I did in Sydney 2000. Mm. Um, when I raced at, at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi, but also two of the world champs in uh, 2011, uh, you, you know, it was to, to, you know, I swam 51.6 in 2010 and finished the year with the number two world ranking. Um, it was 10 years after Sydney Olympics, but, but, the, the journey to get to that one point was totally different. Um, you know, so my, my, my physical approach, but my psychological approach to dealing with that, that pressure was totally different to as it was with Sydney 2000. And I think, sorry to come back to it, it's one thing to have an Olympics, uh, to be able to compete in the Olympics. I think the biggest pressure as well is to have a home Olympics, which is yeah. something that doesn't come by for a lot of athletes throughout their whole career. Yeah, mate. I remember walking out for the semi-final of the 53. Well, first of all, I remember being in the in the marshalling area, you know, the ready room or whatever they call yeah. it back there, you know. So I remember walking in the room and looking around and thinking, shit, this is the 15 fastest guys in the world plus me. Yeah. You know, like, this is it. These this are, the, yeah. are, the, are the boys, you know. Like, yeah. no one's missing. Everybody's yeah. here. Pop-Pop's over there. You got uh, Peter Van and Hoogenban over there. You know, you got... Gary yeah. Hall, Anthony, it's like, 
it was like it's a pretty surreal, who, eh? yeah it is surreal <laughs> walking in and and you don't want to think that but you've, you've never been into a room like that before it's the first time ever and you've got mm. all you know and like you said we didn't have social media back then so for us it was like there was a lot of mystery around people you know yeah you didn't yeah, know what absolutely. they were doing you didn't know you didn't know how they were training you didn't know what they were doing what they were coming in at yeah. And maybe the first time you saw him was that very moment where you walk into the, into the marshalling area of, of the Olympic games and you're like, shit, that's the person I've been hearing about or seeing or whatever it is. But yeah. Um, so that, that definitely took, uh, took some time, took a second just to kind of regroup a little bit. But then, yeah, yeah. then I remember walking out for the, uh, for the introductions, you know, for the semifinal and, and I, I swear I could not breathe like my mm. chest. I wanted to, I was thinking to myself, breathe, breathe, breathe. But my chest wouldn't move. It was just like, like I felt, I felt this weight. Cause you know, the 17,000 people in the grandstand yeah. and, and it was different. It was, it was Sydney. So I didn't feel that in Athens and, and, and it was the birthplace of the Olympics in Athens, but Sydney was different, man. A home Olympics just hit me so different. Um, and, yeah. and especially, especially too, because I mean, you trained in that pool, right? We all we all raced in that pool yeah. on, on many weekends, many competitions in the lead up. Um, that I remember the noise, um, and I get goosebumps every time I think about it. But that noise, just on the first night and yeah. even of every night, was just so deafening, right? Whenever there was an Aussie in the final, yeah. or um, you know, coming out uh, or winning a medal, it was just that noise was just in, within that stadium was so loud and. And, and you hear some of the stories, right? And I didn't get to, to do the walk, but you listen to some of your family members that are there in the stadium or, or have been there. You know, they said that because, because of the angle of the pool and the way that everything looked down, if you sat in the very back row of the stadium, all you could see because of the angle of the pool was lane between lane one and lane eight, mm. right? You couldn't see anything else on any side, right? So yeah. you had that, that noise was just deafening and... Yeah. You know, it was it was a pretty surreal moment, and and same sort of thing, right? I remember walking in to the final, and and you just sit there and you just go, wow, this is something you never expected. Well, it's not that you never expected it; you always expected to be there. Yeah. But you you, you can't, you, you know, I, there's there's only one other time I've ever felt that sort of pressure in my whole life um, of, of the night of the Olympic final. Um, but, but apart from that, it was, it's something that you can never explain to someone. People just won't grasp that, that, that severity of it or the size of that actual event, right? It was, yeah. uh, it was something that was pretty amazing. So, you know, coming back to your original question, what, you know, why, why is the pressure of an Olympics final so different to everything else? I think one, one because as we said, is from a young kid, there's, there's so much history involved around it. So as a young kid, um, you know, my aim or my goal was to always want to win a medal at the Olympics, right? I remember watching John A. Seaman win the 200 butterfly and I was a five-year-old boy at the time. You know, my, my, my goal and my aim was to always want to swim at the Olympics and, and win a medal, win a gold medal like John A. Seaman did. Um, and then... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. And then... And then obviously second to that, because there is so much history and everything else involved around what's going on, it's, um, yeah, it's just something that, um, that, that uh, yeah, it only comes around once in every four years, right? Yeah. Well, then, you know, looking back, do you think you could have done anything different? You know, oh, I mean, you should have done anything different? Like, I know, I know you're inexperienced. I know it's a home crowd. But, like, is there anything you just like, man, if I just had done that, it would have, it would have been fine, you know? Yeah, I think... Um, 
well, obviously the only thing I wouldn't have done different was miss the start, <laughs> <laughs> change, change my whole race strategy, uh, change my whole race strategy on the day or asked a different question. But, but look, would I have done anything different? No. I, I think what I, what I loved about that whole journey from even from 96, from 96 to 2000 was, was just that whole environment, right? Like just to be, to be part of the team, um, you know, part of the Australian team, to, be, to know that that's the one thing we were focused on, to have those opportunities to train with the people we got to train with and learn from and learn from the coaches and the sports scientists and your exercise physiologists and, you know, all of our biomechanics guys, all, all of those things were just, were, it was an amazing time. Like, I, I, I wouldn't change anything. If anything, in the pool, I would have trained even harder than I already trained, right? Like, it yeah. was... Um, you know, one of those things that I just, it was a moment that um, I was really proud of and grateful to have in my whole life. Yeah, yeah. And so then from there, I mean, you obviously have this incredible career for the next, you know, huge amount of time. Like, what was that like past Sydney and beyond? What was the outlook for you um, as a swimmer? Yeah, I think, look, it it was good. I think, um, you know, I was was lucky I went to world. Obviously, I, I made it through to Athens again. I think one of the when I look back on 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 that career from Sydney 2000 to racing in Athens in 2004, if I, if I could have changed anything, I would have changed a lot of things at that point in time. Mm. I think um, you know what I what I found, if anything, you know we went through some massive changes in 2001, and what was what was really good was Worlds in 2001 was an amazing meet. And for, especially for the Australian swim team, it was the first team and the first time ever. It was the first team that's ever beaten the Americans on total gold medals, yeah. uh, ever beaten the Americans on total point score and mm. total medals. Yeah. Right. And, and for us as a team, that was that was one of those achievements that, to be at that 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 swim meet in, in Fukuoka in two thousand and one was was quite an amazing experience, right? But but you can see if you look back on history where the wheels really started to fall off. Uh, and fall apart for swimming Australia was pretty much after that meet, right? Because you know we had Don Talbot uh, at that point. Um, obviously, was was moved aside as the head coach. Um, we had a head head men's coach and head women's coach on the team, and both of those guys were both fighting for that head coach position. Um, and, and then, and then basically from there, as an organisation, they then one of the ways that they, they, they sort of dealt with that, that scenario or that situation was they, they ended up putting a head team manager in uh, to lead the team into competitions. And, and, and whilst, whilst, you know, they did the best decisions that they could at that point of time, mm. hindsight, when you look back at it, it, it obviously wasn't one of the best decisions for the team because it then started creating a lot of infighting um, a lot of politics between the coaches because everyone wanted that head coach position. Yeah. Um, and then they, unfortunately, they put a guy in there that, that's got a lot of respect but didn't have a lot of respect from the coaches, right? So, and, and there was a lot of changes that came through that team, right? Um, you know, I remember we, we went on tours and we went away and some some athletes were able to be given their own rooms and others weren't. Some were, you, you know, <laughs> there were so many different changes and some could come in at certain times and other, others couldn't. And, and for me, it, it sort of broke down that whole idea of what it meant to be part of an amazing team because it was, you know, when, when we were there with Dom, as you, as you remember, it was a one in all in, right? And I think that, you know, that's really what galvanised and brought everyone together. It didn't matter if you're an Ian Thorpe or if you're a rookie on the team or if you're a, 
or if you're a physio or massage therapist, if you didn't pull the line, if you didn't stay in, in, in tune with the culture of the team, then you're cut from the team pretty quick. And, mm. and, and we've seen, we both saw it. We've, we've seen um, athletes be, you know, sent out on the first flight home for, for overstepping a mark or not having a good attitude, right? So, you know, I think, I think then it's just that, that period from 2002 to 2004, when I look back at all of that sort of stuff, I think in a way it was pretty funny because there was two coaches I really wanted to swim with um, in hindsight. And one of them, um, one of them was Jim Fowley, but he took a role then with um, Canadian swimming. So he left the, he left Australia and went to swim for Canada. And the other coach I wanted to swim with was, uh, was Grant Stollwinder, but, but Stolly was based all the way in WA. And, and I look back and, and, you know, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I think the reason why I didn't want to change or, or move off in a different direction was because I got caught up in the whole sponsorship part of life, right? Yeah. You know, living in the fast lane and the corporate dollars were coming in and, you know, I was looking at life outside of the pool as opposed to focusing on what actually mattered most to, to, get, to get to another Olympics. And, mm. and I think that my sort of philosophy or thinking at that point of time was, look, you know, I've stuck with... Ken for this long, my coach for this long, and and there was a method to the madness. So if I just stuck through what I had to do for the next two years, and I knew that I would be standing behind the blocks in Athens, um, you know. Whereas in hindsight, probably what I should have done was looked at it from a fresh set of eyes and and learn and gone and trained with a different coach or or learn some different things to get that motivation there. Because you know, by the time two thousand and two came around, it was. 10 years in the same pool with the same coach. So I started to go pretty stale pretty quick. The difference between obviously 2002 and the era where we grew up is in, and the difference to the stuff today is, is I think that when you get to that elite level of swimming, a lot of the boundaries and a lot of the borders are actually open, right? And, and that means that, um, you know, if I wanted to go and swim, let's say with you at Auburn, um, you know, it, it would be a lot easier for me to just pack up and go and swim for six months to be with you and learn from you and learn from the other swimmers that you had, right? Where if I if I wanted to then, you know, if Gibbo, James Gibson had his squad up and running, if I wanted to go and swim with him for six months or 12 months, then that opportunity would be available yeah. as well. So yeah. I think once you get to that elite level, uh, that experience or the opportunities to go and swim with like-minded athletes at that level, in a different environment is, is a lot more open and a lot more easier in, in international swimming today than it was obviously 20 years ago. Um, so, but, you know, so that's where um, from not a, a learning point of view as an athlete, but that's where uh, from a psychological point of view uh, from chasing the black line up and down the pool for so long, that's where I knew within myself where I'd become stale with that situation. Um, you know, so when I lined up behind the blocks between 2000 and 2004, I was more there, and I look back at it, I was more there not as a competitor, but obviously more as a participant. Um, and, and, and the downside to that is because, you know, I, I just I didn't have the courage to want to do something a little bit different because, you know, the way that the sport was structured or funding was structured in, at that point of time, yeah. um, it made it hard for people to want to go, go off and do something a little bit different. I think, um, you know, if you, you fast forward a couple of years and when I decided to make my comeback after, after blowing out a little bit and, and recognising that, you know, that, that swimming is something I wanted to do, where all the stars started to align is that, you know, when I moved, moved to Sydney in 2007 or, 
2008, I was quite fortunate because the New South Wales Institute of Sport at that point of time uh, ran this swimming program and was putting this elite program together. And lo and behold, the coach I wanted to swim with, Grant Stolwinder, was actually being appointed head coach of that sprint team at that point of time. Oh, yeah. And I remember running into Stolly in, in Sydney and I said, oh, look, Stolly, man, I would love to, you know, I remember sitting there and, you know, I was still 115 kilos. So, <laughs> so I, had to, I had to still shed 20 kilos if I wanted to get behind the blocks and be a little bit competitive. But I put this two-year plan into place and I said to Stolly, oh, look, you know, we're in 98 now. We're, it's, it's like July 98, uh, sorry, t- July 2008. Um, you know, my aim was to swim at the Commonwealth Games and, and, and to represent my country again two years later. And I put this roadmap together and this plan and these are the competitions and this is how I do it. And, you know, we swim at World Cups and, and, and built this amazing roadmap and, you know, the Murray Nostrum tours and this, is, mm. this would be it for two years and this is how I would do it. And Stolly said, oh, look, mate, that's an amazing plan. But I need you, I, you know, I'd love to have you as part of the squad, but but I need to get sign-off. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, who would that be? And lo and behold, the person that had to, I had to get sign-off from was the other coach that I wanted to swim with, which was Jim Fowley, right? So at that point in time, I, I sort of realised that my whole world, or all the stars had aligned, right? Mm. You know, A, it was a second opportunity to, to get in the pool and, and be pretty committed and focused to do the things I wanted to do. But not only that, I was able to learn and, and, and to swim and be coached by two of the amazing coaches that I, I wanted to be coached by at the back end of my career. Um, you know, so it was to me, it was perfect timing and a, a great opportunity to want to obviously, um, you know, follow my, my career again and get, get behind the blocks and start swimming again. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about some coaches and, and what you learned from them. But, uh, you know, the first one, you mentioned Don Talbot a few times. Did you ever have uh, – what's, what's your most classic uh, run-in with Don Talbot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, the, yeah, I, I, I mean, got a good every, one. But everyone's had the typewriter, yeah, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. So we were <laughs> So Don, amazing, amazing coach. He, uh, look, he was, uh, he, he was obviously – very successful and, and just knew how to rally or bring the team together. And I think whether whether you liked him or you hated him, I, I think either, either or that was enough to bring the team together because it made everyone as one. And, and we always called up the typewriter because he was a, a small guy, Don. And I remember he'd be there and, he'd, he'd, and because he's, he'd give you the typewriter on the chest, right? And always pointing at it. You're always looking up like this, right? And he, he just had no fear whatsoever. He was, uh, you yeah, happy know, to, happy to pull it together. But I, I remember... Um, one of my funniest memories. We were at this World Cup in 2001. I think we were in the States. And it was at Edmonton. From uh, So we were in Edmonton and then we were racing in, in the US. And, and um, we got snowed in in Edmonton, right? And, oh, yeah. and so we were missing all the connecting flights. And, and this was actually happening over Thanksgiving weekend in the States, right? <laughs> so obviously everyone was just travelling, right? <laughs> And Don was a guy that just looked, nah, whatever. He, he would go in, right, just get us on the plane, do whatever. And I, I remember standing there and we're at this plane and we were all waiting to sort of check in or because they, they cancelled our flights. And you had these four big blokes, all right, and, and I, they must have been away. It's like they'd been away hunting for the weekend, yeah. right? And there's all of us little – there's probably about four or five of us little wee swimmers and a couple of the coaches there. And, 
you've got these four, four massive guys that have been away for Thanksgiving weekend. And here's Don just standing in the middle, just giving him all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for some reason, they all just gave up their seats and we were all lucky to get on the plane. <laughs> he, did, he had a way, didn't he? <laughs> he, he just had, had a way, right? He had a magic way. Yeah, yeah but, um, you know, he was, he was one of those guys where, as, as he said, he either, he either loved him or he hated him. He, 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 was, he, gave you, he, he was a good guy to, he, 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 if you did something wrong, he wasn't shy in letting you know what you did wrong. Yeah. But he was also really good in being able to pick you up as well, which, which I think was a, a big difference between a, a lot of coaches, right? He's, he, he, still in, he still instilled that belief within you to know that you, you're, you're capable or, or able to take with the rest of the world. Yeah. No, he was definitely one of those people that was down the middle kind of thing. You know, like you either loved him or hated yeah. him. And, yeah. And there, there were some of my friends that, that truly hated him, you know, but uh, I never had that experience with him. I always, I always, uh, for some reason, he always gave me, uh, you know, a fair crack and always, you know, gave me some respect. Now, I will say this, in 96, he, uh, he came up to me. I finished six in the 100 freestyle at the, at the Olympic trials. And, um, and, and the qualifying standard was, you know, they take top six for the relay. So I made the qualifying standard, but he came up to me and said, look, listen, if you, if you finish one or two in the 50, you know, you're going to the Olympics. I was like, all right, great. So I finished third by three one hundreds of a second. Darren Lang touched me out oh, and, no. um, and he left me off the team and didn't, didn't say anything <laughs> to me. I was like, you know, shit. I was so pissed. But, um, but I think, you know, looking back was the best thing that ever happened to me because I think if I had made the Olympics in 96, I may not have ever swum again. You know, that might have been it, but I was so determined to, to get back in. But then I think I had another incident with Don a few years later where I was in Paris and it was snowing outside, but uh, I was racing pop-off in, in uh, the 53 in the prelims and I didn't do too well. And he came up to me, he was giving me the typewriter in the chest in front of everybody, just humiliating me in front of everybody. And, uh, but he said something that has stuck with me to this day and I, and I've used it with other people too. He's like, you know, what have you, what has he got that you don't have? You know, look at you, you got two arms, two legs, you know, you got a heart just like him. You got a brain just like him. Like, what has he got that you don't have? And, uh, and, I, and at the time it was humiliating, but it was, but it, it was also thought provoking. Like, yeah, you know, he's right. Like what does he have that I don't have? He might be a few inches taller, but, but I, I was always, you know, you, you give, you give these, these guys so much more credit for how great they are. And then you don't yeah. really look at yourself. And he was, he was looking at me and saying, you're just as good. It, you know, yeah. it, it, you gotta, you, you need an awakening. You know, you got to wake up, but it's there if you want it. You know, I remember that being a real turning point for me in my career of like, yeah, I I remember I came back that night and swam faster. I didn't beat pop off, but I swam a lot faster thing. And it was, it was one of those moments where you thought, wow, I I got a lot more in me than I really thought I had, you know, and he he had that ability to kind of pull it out of you at times, you know? And and that's what I was saying before when, when we, when I look back at some of those swim camps that we went on, you know, in 94, 95, a lot, a lot of swimmers on the swim team, we believed it, but we didn't actually believe that we were able to take it to the Americans, yeah. right? And as that time went by, obviously just you started to believe it more and more and more. And that's where, uh, you know, you started to, to really, I don't, I don't know whether it was, and it's not just, it wasn't just Don Talbot and it wasn't just having a home Olympics, I think it was a it was a culmination of the whole environment, the swimmers that we had at that point in time, everything else, and 
that's where the success within the Australian swim team really started to take it to another level. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about Ken Wood real quick. You know, obviously he had a huge impact on you. What what you learn from him that you kind of use in your own life now? And then second part to that question is what what kind of impact did his death have on you? Um, yeah. Um, to, what did I learn from him? I think, um, you know, I, well, I learned, I, I learned a lot, Orky. I think, yeah. you, you know, obviously from the, the, the belief uh, you know, being, being trying to be as positive as you can, having the belief uh, to know that that you can do the things that we could do in life if if you just set your mind to it, and you, you sort of approach approach everything. But also too, the fact that you've just got to work hard for everything, right? Because nothing is going to be given to you on a platter. Um, you, you know, I think the the biggest thing, the the impact that uh, after he passed away, or what was it? it? Would have been just over eighteen months ago, a bit longer than that. I mean, that was one of the drivers and the motivators of me changing my life and, and doing something a little bit different. I think that, um, you, you know, I, 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 I sort of realised that, you know, it was a moment, it was, really was a moment to sit down and start to analyse and reassess my goals and what am I doing with my life at that point in time. And as I said, I was in business and private banking, um, you know, and it was, it was a different environment back then in Australia, um, you know, even though it was less than two, almost two years ago, you know, the landscape was totally different from a business perspective and, and from a bank culture sort of point of view. And I sort of recognised again and realised that, that, hey, life is life is pretty short, right? So, um, you know, so you've got to go out there and you've got to make the best of every opportunity. And, and if you're not happy with your life, then you've got to do something about it, right? I, I think one of the biggest things that, one, one of the best things that he always used to say, um, you know, I remember being in the pool with Ken and, and he would say, son, Jesus is not going to come down and tap you on the shoulder. If you're sick, get to a doctor. If you're injured, get to a physio. If you want something in life, you've got to get off your ass and you've got to work hard for it. <laughs> I can hear him saying that too. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the best things that he ever said. I'd sit there and go, what? Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's probably one of the big lasting impressions that, that I've ever had, right? If you, if you want something, if you know, the, future's, the future hasn't been written yet. And that's, that's one of the things I try and share with a lot of kids today, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if, you know, same sort of philosophies of what Don, Don used to say to us, right? And what do these people have that you don't have? Um, but also, too, it's, it's one of those things, you've, you've got a short period of your life there. What do you want to do with it? Do you, do you want to create an opportunity and, and put your name up there and stamp it in, in history and have it always there for the rest of your life? Um, or, or do you want to just keep going along and, and just doing the same thing that you, you always do, right? I mean, it's like the old saying, um, you know, if you always do what you've always done, then you'll always get what you've always got, right? And um, yeah, yeah. that's the, with, with, with what you learn in sport and in particular with swimming and being surrounded by like-minded people is that you always find a way to make it work, right? There's always a way over it, a way under it, a way around it, a way through it, whatever the challenge is, you know, pull on the like-minded people that you've got in your network and your environment to be able to find a way to just get through the challenge that you need to get through. Yeah, that's good advice, man. And that's kind of the, the next part. We all have challenges. We all have struggles. One of your struggles in life, and, and it's been documented at times, is kind of your struggle with your weight. Um, why do you think that has been a struggle for you? Like, how, how is it, how's that affected your life? 
Yeah, I think as I got a bit older, hockey, I probably realised I'm, I'm, I'm probably an emotional eater and an emotional drinker. <laughs> I think, like, you know, I think everyone has their vices. You know, one of the, one of the biggest things I've learned throughout throughout life so far is that you know humans are creatures of habit, right? So in a time of stress, everyone turns to creature comforts, right? Mm-hmm. Some people it's booze, others it's food, it's gambling, it's recreational. Um, you know, it's 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 spending, it's whatever. I, I think that. Um, like yeah, right I'm, now in this time of quarantine, it's really coming out too, isn't it? Oh, everyone's being tested, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and tested in a psychological way. And, and I think this is, this is one of the hardest things about the situation that we're all going through at the moment is, is that it's a realisation of, of where we all are in life. But, but the, second part, the second part to that is that if we all knew where the end game was, then psychologically we could all prepare for it. Right, because you know that it's no different to, to I guess, swimming at the Olympics. If you know that on this day, at this point of time, life can get back to semi-normal and the borders will open or work can start again or these things can happen, then then it's a psychological goal that we can all work towards. I think that's where the biggest challenge in, at the moment is, is that no one knows. We're, we're all venturing into, a, into an area that, that we can have all of the best experts in the world tell us the reality is, is no one has actually been through this situation before, yeah. right? So there is no there is no actual end date to um, end date to when this stuff can sort of end. Uh, but on top of that, as well, is that no one knows what it's going to look like when it does end, right? I think um, you know one of the biggest challenges I'm facing at the moment is obviously being stuck in Singapore and my kids being in Australia with all the borders shut. Um, you know, I, I can't get back to Australia at the moment. Uh, to be able, to, oh, I can get back to see my kids, but um, but then w- what does work look like? Because yeah. you know the unfortunate thing with, with businesses that are shut, you know, swimming pools are shut, fitness centres are shut, um, you know, gyms and everything else like that. So it's um, you know how long would it be before business starts up again, um, and, and then what does it look like, right? So it, it's it's different. I mean, everyone's going through different challenges. I, I don't know what it's like uh, where you are in the states. But, but obviously, you know, we've seen this year the Olympics has been pushed back for 12 months, right? So, um, you know, that's that's obviously an environment, a situation that none of our coaches have ever been in before. Um, and as athletes, none of us as athletes have ever sort of experienced as well, I think. You know, so what, what does that do for you, for your psychological state? Um, you know, everyone was sort of geared and prepared to, to race in uh, July this year. Mm. Um, in, in Tokyo, but but obviously that's been that's been turned around as well. I think, um, yeah, it's going to be some interesting racing. But I think the most exciting part as a as a if you're an athlete or if you're a coach, and, and what you've got to recognise is that we're all in this situation together, right? So there's not one person is going to have uh, any more advantage than the other person when they step up behind the blocks in 2021 to race at the Olympics, right? So. I think you know the most one of the most important things is how people deal with the circumstance that they're in at this, at this in this current environment, and then how to, how quick can they bounce back to be able to to be prepped and ready to go again next year. I think um, yeah. if you're an athlete, if you're an older athlete, or if you're an athlete that's had a little bit of illness or injury this year, COVID nineteen was probably one of the best things that has happened to you from a preparation point of view, because it gives you that extra 12 months to get ready. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but I think that uh, if you're an un- a younger athlete that's coming up through the ranks, this is, this is where you're really going to be tested 
um, how well you still can compose yourself and hold your nerve to be able to execute again in 12 months time. Yeah. yeah. That's good advice, mate. What, what was it like when you finally made the decision like, that's it. I can't, can't do this anymore. Like how, how'd you come to that conclusion? Uh, in, in terms of, yeah, just finishing that chapter of your life. You know, you've been identified mm-hmm. as a swimmer, just, you know, your own identity. How do yeah. you, how did you just close that chapter? Um, look, I found it pretty tough. I found it hard the first time. Definitely the first time was the hardest um, because when I, I, I walked away from the sport, I, I didn't actually have anything to, to, to uh, go into, mm. um, which was the biggest thing that I learned. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I think in periods there and, and what I sort of learned is that during my sporting career, I was, I was 100% sport and, and, and nothing for my outside world, right? Um, I think in the second time around, um, what I started to learn was throughout my sporting career, I was 80 or 90% sport, 20% business. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and when I had down times, it sort of shifted the other way. I was, you know, 30 or 40% sport and then mm. 60 or 70% business or outside world. So yeah. when I got to the, the second part of my career, I, mm. I knew I had something to walk into. So I walked into a, uh, a traineeship or a, uh, an apprenticeship, so to speak, at, uh, with uh, one of Australia's biggest banks here because uh, mm. they were one of my sponsors. And, and then I also, it gave me an opportunity to, to sort of build a world around everything that I learned in sport. And, and, and the reality of it was it was about performance or recovery, right? The recovery is the most important aspect because it's how well do you recover today to be able to perform again tomorrow. So I built a, a, a range around everything that, that we were exposed to, right? So I was, um, you know, I was quite fortunate. I built an active apparel range, which mm. was high-end compression garments. Yeah. And then um, I got involved with the company and we developed a, a range of protein powders and vitamins and supplements. Um, you know, what, what I sort of underestimated, <laughs> underestimated throughout that journey is, is production lines, um, how long it takes to, to be able to get a product developed and then take it on to, uh, onto the market. Um, yeah. So timelines, production lines, all of that sort of stuff. Um, but that being said, it was also, um, you know, the other part to the business that I built, uh, was able to develop was a corporate performance and wellbeing business. Um, so I was able to work with a lot of corporates on, on everything that we learn in sport from physiology and psychology um, around um, around an elite athlete, um, you know, and then how then do we bring those elite athletes together and then either drive or motivate um, corporates to to help take their thinking or to take their le- their performance to the next level. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it's good stuff, mate. It's definitely needed, you know. It's definitely needed. Um, what are what are some of the uh, things that you see that correlate between your athletic performance and kind of your business life? Um, obviously the, the vision and the goal setting is a, is a big part to it. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a few other little bits and pieces. I think, um, I I think the hardest part through the transition or or, or the transition from athlete into business is, is recognizing uh, again, timelines, right? Mm. Timelines is the big thing, I think. And this is what I learned in the second part of my career as well. And I used to have a chat to Stolly about this all the time. He said, you know, I used to get frustrated all the time when I was, when I was training or when I was racing that the gains weren't coming as easy as they did in the first part of my career. Yeah. And, and what I sort of 
what I sort of realised and learned as well is that it's not that the gains weren't coming. I think I was beating myself up more on, on you know, how easy it was in the first part of my career. But, mm. but the biggest thing in, and that I, I learned from a couple of coaches and Stolly being one is that what I actually forgot is how long it actually took for me to get to the top of the game. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and that's the one thing. Once you're at your top of your game, it's easy to maintain that momentum and stay at the top yeah. of your game. Yeah. Right. But I forgot the four, five, six years before, mm. you know, as a 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kid and the work that I had to put into it mm. to get to being um, one of the best athletes in the world. So, so I think that, you know, that transition into the, the business world or the corporate world or whatever whatever world you're going to move into post-swimming, um, what, what, what we sort of forget is that is how long did it take for us to get to the best of our ability as an athlete, but we've got to apply the similar or same sort of timeline to achieve success in the sport in the, in the business world. But then the other part, the other part that I sort of not really struggled with is, uh, is how do you define success? Right, because success to everyone is going to be different. Um, you know, success to me is different to in the corporate world or the business world is different to success for you or success for Klimi or success for Thorpey, right? Yeah. Um, what does that success look like? Is it a, do you want to develop a product line? Is it do you want to become the CEO of a bank or do you want to become well, what, what, what is that success um, to you and what defines it? And then this, the other part as well is that you, you got to realize. Or I had to realise that as a as a father and, and as a uh, as not a, a professional athlete, as a professional athlete, that whole focus is you doing the job that you need to do. Once you become a father, or once you have a family, and there are other components or other other parts or cogs in that wheel, you've actually got to start to think about other people that are either living under your roof, or that you're supporting, or other wheel uh, other parts to that whole machine that helps to get you to where you need to get to um you know and, and, and that's probably one of the things that that um that you underestimate as well and as, as i said as as we get a little bit older and you realize there's more mouths that you either have to feed or you don't have to feed um you know and and you get to those stages in life where you either have it or you don't have that success what you recognize is how hard it takes to get there so mm. how risk adverse you become with a lot of decisions that you start to make, whether that's from a financial point of view, whether that's from a risk point of view. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to, to, to not um, walk into things uh, with the blinkers on, right? Because as an athlete and as a professional athlete, when you step up behind the blocks, your only goal is to win, right? Win, lose or draw. Like that's it. You get, you get an outcome, you know, on day six or day seven at that, that competition, you're going to get an outcome and the results are black and white. Um, in business, there's so many other moving parts to that to that wheel that it sometimes feels that there, there is never an end date to, yeah. to you achieving that success, right? Because yeah. people, people don't either step up or deliver on time. Uh, the environment change and the landscapes change uh, and these are things that are out of your control. Um, or as an example, like, like with COVID, uh, there are circumstances that, that just totally change your whole direction and your thinking um, and, and really push your timelines out. So there are a lot of correlations and things that I, I did learn from sport that I've applied, uh, hopefully tried to apply to my business uh, mentality as well. But, but the hardest part is recognising that, you know, in sport, you, you know, you're going to have certainty, right? On this day, at this point in time, you'll get a result. 
in business, those timelines can get pushed back by one week or three weeks or six months, um, and they're things that are out of your control as well. So it's, it's, that's where you get tested more from that, uh, from that, uh, from that approach to, uh, to the next phase of your life. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff, mate. Most people uh, who are not Australian don't fully understand how big swimming is in Australia. I mean, you were at the top of the pile in terms of celebrity when it was when when you're at your peak, and you know, and you see the swimmers these days. What's what's some of the advice you could probably give um, some of the young superstar swimmers in Australia these days in terms of celebrity and how to handle that? Uh, yeah, probably not just in Australia, probably in the rest of the world, Hawkey. I think <laughs> I think that the biggest thing you've got to realise, or, or I try and explain to the kids, is that there's two, well, there's two parts. Use your sport for life after sport. That, that's the most important thing, right? What you learn in sport from never give up attitude, goal setting, teamwork, discipline, uh, being coachable are skills that you can apply in the next phase or part of your career. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter if you finished school or you didn't finish school or whatever. It's what sets you apart from everyone else is the fact that you're either an Olympian or you were an elite athlete, yeah. right? So those skills are, are totally different because in every environment you go into, as we both know, um, you can always be coachable. Right, you, yeah. you, and, and for most most bosses or most teams or most companies, they pick athletes up because of the culture or their experiences they've learned from elite sport. But the second part is you will always be coached how well they can be coached into a new role, a new role or yeah. a, a yeah. new position or anything else like that. Um, the second the second tip, which is probably the most important one, especially in today's world. Um, and that being obviously around social media and everything, is that, A, remember that everyone is going to be a reporter, mm. right? Everyone's got his mobile phone and everyone's going to be a reporter. So in the blink of an eye, your career can be changed or turned upside down. And with that being said, you've got to remember that your sporting career is like going into the Big Brother house. I don't know. Remember that TV show, Big yeah, Brother, where yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, these, <laughs> all these people were in a room and then everyone was watching what they were doing, right? yeah. Your sporting career is exactly the same. It's like going into the big brother house. For a short period of time, you're going to be thrown out into the spotlight. You've got to remember that once you leave that big brother house, you're going to be asking, you're going to need to do something for a living, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you don't, so if you go around pissing everyone off or annoying people, right, yeah. that's going to be the difference between how the public perceives your brand or doesn't perceive your brand or whether or not you may or may not want to work with the person, right? But I think that um, you, you know, if if you can if you can remain humble, uh, re- remain true to yourself and, and what you want to do, but not get caught up in, in, in life too much life in the fast lane. I think that's that's going to make it a lot easier from that transition uh, from professional athlete in, into the real world, right? Yeah, yeah. One of the things I always notice too about celebrity is that. You were a superstar swimmer, but the people that were clinging on to you and that were around you, they weren't athletes. You know, they were successful mm. in other areas or they wanted to be around you and they may have had some money or whatever it was, but they weren't athletic, you know, and, mm. and you needed to be in the pool. You need to be, you need to be training. You needed to be ready to go. And there are moments in celebrity when you get pulled out into the outside yeah. world and you're not around athletes, but it's this glitz and glamour. 
but the reality is you really need to be here doing this in order to be successful as an athlete too, right? Well, that's, that's, that's the thing, Hawkey. You're either pregnant or you're not, right? <laughs> so, so you're either in it or you're not. And that's, that's one of the challenges that, that all athletes will face, right? Especially when they become um, uh, not a product of the environment, or, or especially when they start to have a little bit of success, right? Because, um, you know, and that's, that's one of the things that I found really hard, but also too as an athlete, that's probably one of the things I, I really sort of wanted or or wanted to enjoy. I think that, um, you, you know, once you, and swimming's a, it's a, look, it's a grueling sport physiologically and psychologically, right? Yeah. Like if you're, and especially if, and, and you know, as a coach and, and, and now as a retired athlete, as a coach myself, I start to, I, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And when you can look back at it, at the end of the day, it's about how do you minimize that distraction with, with the individual, with that athlete? Um, but at that point of time when I was an athlete, if you weren't at the pool, you're at the gym. If you weren't at the gym, you're at the physio. If you weren't at the physio, you're at home resting, right? And if you weren't at home resting, you're at the pool, right? So it's a pretty sort of um, isolated place to be to be in, right? And after a while, you you, you know, it's going to wear you down mentally and you want to, everyone's naturally is going to look at what's outside of the pool and what's out who else is out there and what other interesting characters are around and, yeah and that's just that's just a part of a part of a natural part of life right is how do you remain focused and how do you remain uh committed to the job that needs to be committed and, and that's why i said you're either pregnant or you're not right if you're there to do a job it's yeah. right let's focus on the job and, and let's let's be 110 percent but but you've also got to you've got to find that balance and have the right people around you i think that's that's probably one of the biggest things that I, I learned throughout as well as I, I did have some really good people around me. Um, at times I didn't want to listen to them. At times yeah. I did listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then also too is, you, you know, you can, it's, it's the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but at the end of the day, you can't force it to drink. Right. So and as a, as an athlete, and especially as a parent now, one of the hardest things to do is to, you can guide your students or people in the right path, but, that 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 approach where it's do it this way or the highways it's no longer you can't sort of the kids today just won't listen to that sort of stuff right so as a as a successful coach you've got to be able to to share your experiences or or get the individual to realize what's at stake if they decide to live their life in a certain way or whatever but you've also got to allow them to have that psychological break but as long as they use that time wisely wisely to 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 put it into things that will help their career then that's the thing that matters most right i think you know the, and what i've sort of realized especially as we get older you now one of the best words of advice i was ever given is is time is the only thing you can't get back in life mm. right you can rebuild your finances you can rebuild your relationships you can rebuild your assets but time is the only thing you can't get back in life so don't waste time with time wasters Right, it was basically the gist nice, that I got yeah. I from. I love that. It's good advice, man. Yeah, yeah from <laughs> a highly educated individual, right? It's, um, you know, so it, it's taken me a long time to learn that sort of stuff. And, and look, I still, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, you can't just flick the switch and be this, as you know, this this all all being all supreme individual that yeah. you know that just doesn't eat one way or doesn't live one way or doesn't do that. It takes time and, and it's about creating habits within people to be able to hopefully 
make better choices throughout their career. And that's, that's ultimately what you want as a coach is when an individual moves into that environment or circumstance, they've got enough experience or wisdom behind them to know that they won't make poor choices um, throughout their career. Naturally, people do make poor choices, but they understand the ramifications from the poor choices that they make. Mm, yeah, mate. Great advice. I love it. What's the What's the one swim that kind of sticks out in your mind in your career as as the one where you got it right, or the one where you that was your best swim or best performance, or what's What's the one that sticks out? Oh yeah, uh, that's an easy one, mate. Delhi, two thousand and ten, Commonwealth Games, hundred butterfly, fifty one six um, in the final. It was uh, It was as I said, it was ten years after I swam in Sydney. Mm. Um, you know, and I swam, I swam 51.9 in Sydney and then 51.6 in, in Delhi. Um, but it was a race where it was just everything came together, right? Nailed the start, underwaters, the whole race plan, did what I had to do and executed the perfect race plan. I think the, the, the sad or the scary part is that it took me 20 years to get the perfect <laughs> swim under my belt. It took me a long time to get that perfect race done. But, but it, was, it was the one race where, where I sort of looked at it and just said, right, oh, I thought of it as this would be the last ever 100 butterfly I'll do in my life. Right? Really? Oh, I, wow. I, yeah. So I was sort of, I was looking at it from that point of view as well. And, you know, I was quite fortunate in, in 2010, I finished the year with number two in the world rankings, right? So... So I think from from that it was that was probably the the, the best the best race throughout my career that um, that we were just nailed everything and just did it all right. Do you remember what you were thinking right before you you stood up on the block at all? Uh, yeah, just had that confidence about me, right? Mm. Like this is it. You know what you're doing. You know what you have to do. Um, right. This, let's execute the race plan. Let's take it to the the other competitors that are at the race and you know, you've been here before, right? You, you, this is, and, and, and that's where, that's where I look at the experiences from what I learned in Sydney 2000 from handling pressure, handling environment, handling that situation, all of the, all of the experiences we went through on tours and teams and, you, you know, Delhi, Delhi competition was an interesting one. It was, um, you know, everyone was concerned about the security at that point of time. Um, Delhi, going into Delhi was like going into Athens in 2004, right? Yeah. Um, it was, um, you know, the village yeah. hadn't been the village hadn't been completed, right? We were sort of laughing. I remember going into Athens. The one thing we were sort of laughing about was take a screwdriver and a paintbrush and fix up everything on the way through, right? <laughs> in, in your room, if things aren't right, and, yeah. and they were the things we were thinking about. And I think that that's, you know, so my experience in Athens had prepared me for the situation in Delhi. Um, and, and then, you know, the experience that I had in, in Sydney also prepared me for that one race as well. Um, and, and knowing that I also had a life outside of the pool, that the, all of the pressure was off, right? Regardless of what I'd, what I'd achieved in the pool, everything I'd already achieved, the biggest thing for me was, was being able to get behind the blocks again and, and to be able to have that second opportunity to race. Um, so I think, uh, I think that was without doubt one of the most exciting or, or, or best races that I ever did. And then, you know, obviously from there I had a, you know, finishing uh, with the time that I did, you know, I sort of realised that that, that, that um, London was, was well, trials for London was 18 months away and I, I knew that I wouldn't be at the same place or the same, or I wouldn't be in that peak physical fitness again to, mm. uh, to have a, another shot in the Olympics. So, 
you know, what I learned throughout that, that 2011, 2012 sort of season was that what I underestimated that time going into trials was how much I actually had on my plate. Um, you know, so I, I didn't allow enough time for recovery and, and I had a few illnesses uh, in 2011. It was a pretty rough year because I'd sort of go three weeks on and then one week sick, right? And then a week at 60%, a week at 80%, back to 100%, and then my immune system would shut down again and I'd be sick for another week, right? And I pretty much went through 2011 as, as, as that throughout my whole year. Mm. Um, and, and when I got to the end of 2011, I, I, you know, I was, I, I, we were at a training camp in, um, in Perth, um, you know, as, as an example, I was supposed to sail the Sydney to Hobart that year. And so we went over in December oh, on wow. Boxing Day. I was going to start the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. And, um, and you know, I mean, that's a prime example of having too much on my belt, right? Like yeah. my, my, my whole priority should have, and it was about qualifying for London, but I had so many other things going on in the background. And, yeah. and, and that was one of those things. I had an infection that I hadn't let heal properly. Um, obviously, every time I'd, I'd push push my body to the limit, uh, my immune system would break down um, and, and then it would take time to relax, uh, to, to obviously repair itself. So going into 2012, it's, I didn't realise that until I, you know, you get prod and poked from every angle and it's like, right, well, what's wrong with you and well, why are you getting sick and why is your immune system shutting down? And, and then once you realise all of those things, the unfortunate thing leading into trials in 2012 was it just left my timing too late. Right, then it was, I only had say, you know, 31 days until day one of competition, as opposed to having six months or four months of good preparation, you know, 16 weeks leading into that competition. So, you know, that's coming back to us where I sort of learned that you're either pregnant or you're not, right? You're either going to commit to the job and do what needs to be done and minimize the outside distractions to get done uh, to be able to execute the perfect strategy. Um, but but the difference between obviously sport and business is that when you come to business, you've got so many other people that you've got to look after, um, and that you can't just have that black or white approach, right? You've yeah, got to be yeah. able to learn to live life in the grey and be able to adapt to different timelines and different situations. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, mate. Um, who was the most impressive uh, female and male athlete that you witnessed in your kind of career? You know, just on the Australian team, like, you know, if you, you sat back and watched somebody, who, who were the two most impressive, you know, male and female for you? Yeah. I mean, you're obviously up there, Hawkey. No, 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 no. That was, that was not no, I think, but I mean, the way you would prepare for race day, it was pretty impressive, right? You just had this laser vision and this laser focus and, and you you did what you had to do to make sure you were ready for race day, which was good. And, and, and I love that. It wasn't until time goes by that you value and you appreciate and you respect that within an individual. So that that's pretty impressive. You would, I appreciate you, you saying that. No, you, you didn't let anything or anyone get in your way. So you were able to take responsibility for your performance and your outcome, right? You knew that you did everything you possibly could to make sure that you were ready at, at that point of time, which is that's... And that's quite unique and, and different in, uh, within the individual. Um, obviously, when we were swimming, <laughs> watching Thorpey come through yeah. the system, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember, geez, what, what did he go? When he went 343 for the 400 freestyle, right? He basically negative split it, 
right? Yeah. So what, 141 or 142, 141, um, you know, for, for two 200s. I mean, uh, he could he could race too, but he could do some impressive stuff in practice too. Oh, like I, there was uh, stuff that people just didn't see behind the scenes. Yeah. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> exactly. And that, that's the stuff that, that was the stuff I was talking about before. I get goosebumps. It just drives and motivates you as an athlete. Yeah. Um, seeing him, him and Hacky go head to head in training was unreal, right? And yeah, yeah. I think Worlds two thousand and one, uh, you know, because that's the first year the eight hundred came into the World Championships, like yeah. the fifties, right? Yeah. And that was the bridge between Thorpey swimming a four hundred and Hacky swimming a fifteen hundred, right? That was like the middle ground um, because everyone used to always think, "Oh, I wonder if Thorpey would ever do a fifteen hundred, and if he did, would he beat Hacky in the fifteen hundred, right?" And um, and I think in that race, Hacky, no, not in that race, at that meet, Hacky went 14 uh, 31 for the 1500 freestyle, broke the world record, broke yeah. Kieran Perkins' world record. Yeah. And, and the 800 free came into it. And, and, um, and that was a race where when you watch the two of them swim, you watch Thorpey down one, one, one way down the pool, he'd always eye off Hacky as he breathed and on the way back you always eyed him off on the other way as well and if if in the 400 free if Hackey went at the 150 meter mark Thorpey stuck with him mm. if Hackey went at the 350 Thorpey stuck with him mm. so so that sort of meat and that that uh, that those seeing those swims you sort of ever wondered if Thorpey ever did the 1500 mm. would he have ever broken you know 13 uh, 14 yeah. 40 uh, 30 yeah. like uh, like like uh, Hackey did but yeah. You know, another sort of performance, obviously, seeing um, seeing Michael Michael Phelps win yeah. right through his career. I mean, we, we both know it's it's hard enough winning an Olympic medal, or let alone winning an Olympic gold medal. But to come away from your career with twenty three Olympic gold yeah. medals, sick. I mean, that's, that's, sick. that's out of control, yeah. right? That's that's pretty out there, right? So, um, you know, to see an athlete do something like that, that's pretty amazing in itself, and. And I think from a female point of view, female perspective, it's, I mean, there's so, so many different ones, right? So many, you know. I you, think, you were to train with a bunch up in Queensland too. On the Queensland team, there was, there was a bunch of superstars. So, you know? Liesl Jones was there. Yeah, Liesl Jones. Yeah. Um, Libby Trickett. Stephanie Rice. Yeah. Um, you know, training with Libby was pretty, pretty surreal. It was pretty, pretty interesting in seeing swim. And also Therese Alshama. Yeah. Right? Therese, yeah. I mean, she was, she was one of the best female swimmers that I've ever had the privilege of training with and, yeah. and obviously watching her race. I mean, she is a 110% professional athlete. Yeah. I mean, you can never say a bad word about her as a person and, and yeah. about her, her performance in, in, in and out of the pool. I mean, she was one woman that just, if you were asked to give 100%, mate, she would give 150. She would go above and beyond in a, a physiological and a psychological approach to the game. It was just, a, it was... One, it was amazing to watch. Two, it was embarrassing to be around because I, it was embarrassing for myself because at times I knew that it's not that I was cutting corners. It was times where you just knew that you weren't giving it your all. Right? Yeah. And, and so you, you sort of woke up pretty quick to, to know that whether or not you were doing a good job both in and out, out of the pool. And, you know, I would say she would definitely be the, one of the best female athletes that I've ever seen both yeah. in and out of, out of the pool and her approach. And, um, yeah, pretty lucky to sort of be to to experience a lot of those athletes throughout my career. Yeah, mate, it was it was definitely a golden era. You know, like you said, to have Thorpey and Hackey and on the same team at the same time, it was it was it was very surreal. Like you'd watch them practice, you're like, these are two of the greatest athletes in any sport yeah. at the moment. You know, this these guys are freaks. 
Well, you also forget, right? So, Hacky held the world record in the 200 freestyle, 1997. Did I he think, really? Oh, wow. Right? I think he broke it in Brisbane in 97. Oh, wow. Right? So, you've got Hacky, you had Thorpey, you had Klimmy, world yeah. record holders. Yeah. Right? You had um, Kieran Perkins. Yeah. Daniel Kowalski, Matt Dunn, Todd Pearson, Billy Kirby. So, you've got eight or eight swimmers there that basically, I remember when we went to Panpax 99 or Panpax, it was Panpax 99. You know, you've got eight swimmers in the top 10 of the world at that point of time, right? And only yeah. two were ever going to go through into the final. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, but that was also one of the philosophies that, that Gennady Turetsky, I remember Gennady, Klimi's coach, used to say as well, right? He said, the success of your team is built off the success of some of your relay swimmers because if yeah. you had strong depth, uh, within your team, then you knew that it created an environment where everyone else had to step up and take it to that next level, right? And that's where, um, you know, one of, one of the reasons that the team, I, I thought the team was so successful as well leading into into 2000. It wasn't just that time. It wasn't the environment. Um, it was the success that we had as a team and the people that we had as our support staff and everything else like that um, that, that helped make the team as successful that it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. It's incredible. We had a little incident. You remember the little incident we had? Oh, man, it still we had many me. little incidents. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had we had one. It haunts me to this day. I'm so I'm so embarrassed by it. You know, <laughs> I can't remember. We're I don't know what city we're in. Somewhere in Japan. Fukuoka Worlds 2001. Having dinner. I thought you for, I thought you forgot that for sure. Oh, oh man, man. Oh, but geez. it was. And, and that's where that's where that's where I, I looked and respected you as a, as an individual, and that was a big wake up call to me as well. For everyone that that's out there is going, oh, what's going on with the incident? So, <laughs> so, and that was it was a swim meet where uh, we sat at dinner, and, and obviously I was giving you a lot of shit, and I was ribbing you and ribbing you. <laughs> you turn around, you were. Skippy, if you don't shut up, I'm going to pick your eyeballs out with this fork. <laughs> I did. I did. I was like, oh, yeah, all right. That's pretty cool. <laughs> you were like, what? <laughs> I, like, I had to repeat it. I was like, oh, God, I had to say it twice. I was like, no way. I was so... I was so uh, I was just so angry, but you you brought up a good point, and it's it's one of the p- parts of my career that I look back, and and I and I, I was tormented all the time because, like you said, mm. you and I were the ones that were sitting there till day seven to race. You know, like oh, man, you you swam you swam fly, I swam the, you swam the hundred fly, I swam the fifty three. We're always on the same day, so it was always yeah, me and you. Seven. Yeah, it was always yeah. me and you sitting there till the end of the meet. So we had all these incredible performances going on, world records being broken. Yeah. And, but the, the part about that meet is the pool, the pool is an hour bus ride away. So, yeah. like the, the, the philosophy on the Australian team at the time was like you went and supported your whole team. So by the time you and I got to day seven, we'd been on four-hour bus rides every day. We'd seen all these incredible performances. There's the pup. Um, you know, so we're going through this huge event. And so we're exhausted by the time we get to our event. So yeah. I remember you come back one day and you'd, you'd been out to the, the prelims uh, or the, the heats in the morning and, and I was sitting there having dinner and you were like, where have you been? <laughs> you know, and yeah. At that point, I was just so frustrated of having to, like the, the just going through the motions of... Oh, and I just, day. Yeah, and I just thought to myself, like, I want to I wanna swim a great 50 free here. Like, I don't, mm. I, I want to be a great teammate. 
but I also want to swim a great 50 free. So it was that, that torment. I remember that, that one time where I, where I decided to stay back at the hotel, you immediately called me out and I deserved it. No <laughs> doubt about it. Like I deserved it. But, and, but you got me at a time where I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, my, it just, it's all, it just it's all good. Me. It's all good. But, but I remember, because that's what a lot of people didn't realize. And that's where, that's what Don would instill within the team, right? Yeah. It, it didn't matter if you were a rookie on the team or Thorpe or whatever. Yeah. It was, it was, you had to be in the grandstand. You had to be in the grandstand. You had to have warm up done before finals started or heat started, had to be in the grandstand or whatever. And, and I think that that's where, um, you know, cause it was tough for everyone, but everyone was in the same boat and, and you're, I think that's, you know, I was pretty young and naive, obviously, and 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 obviously, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, 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 that 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 made made me realise and appreciate that everyone was definitely different, yeah. and everyone was different in their strategy and their approach to get ready yeah. for race day, yeah. right? And 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 you were right. I mean, you know, it was an hour bus ride to the pool. Then you had to be at the pool. You had to sit at the heats, which is mentally draining. Yeah. And then it was an hour bus ride home. And then you had to go again in the afternoon. So, so per day you were spending, it was an hour minimum. So per day you yeah. were spending anywhere from four to five, if not six hours in a bus. In a bus, yeah. Right? Just traveling to and from the pool, right? And, yeah. and so obviously you could see why, uh, you, you know, I, I look back when you, you debrief and you reflect on the meat, why people, why people's, People are different, right? You can't just put everyone in the same box and expect, um, expect you know, the cream to rise to the top and, and everyone to to just perform it the way that they perform. And you know, they, that that whole meeting itself, as I said, that was the turning point for swimming Australia, where every everything from there has just moved in a diff, different direction. And some parts of it were really good, some parts of it were, were totally different. But um, but but yeah, but that meeting itself was was a Oh mate, regardless of what you said, it was <laughs> I probably deserved to have my eyeballs picked out at that stage. <laughs> but no, but it was a, it was, a, it was a, it, as I said, it, it was a meet that that to be part of that the one and only team, to my knowledge, that's ever beaten America, the American swim team. I mean, they're let's face it, they're the ones. The, the, the U.S. team is is the best team in the world. It's the one that everyone wants to beat. Uh, the the uh, you know everyone wants to sort of get over the top of. And they're the team that's dominated everything for so long. And I remember, I remember even 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 as an example, I don't know if you remember the one of the longest ever one of the longest ever um, um, gold medal performances at an Olympics was the men's four by one freestyle relay, mm. right? Like mm. that was the one of one of the longest ever um, events that had never ever been broken and yeah. the US team would always win that yeah. right so on night one in Sydney when, oh, when yeah. Australia came out and, and and you know we we were fortunate enough to I get goosebumps I mean Climbing was part of the team and yeah. to sit in the grandstand and, and to watch the boys get over the US the first time that any team had ever done that in the 4x1 freestyle relay on night one it, it really set the tone it was really a it, it really sort of made everyone believe that obviously that the that we could do better within ourselves and step up to to the to the mark, right? But you know, obviously that momentum carried into Worlds in 2001, and, and to be part of that team where you know we we we, did, we were fortunate to beat the Americans on point scores and, and total gold medals and 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 total um, total medals in particular it was a it was a, it was an amazing period, um, you know, to be part of that. If the best way to probably explain it to, to those people 
or to the, the average punter that's out there. It would be like if you were going to an Olympic Games and you had to play the dream team, right, and you got up over the dream team at the Olympics in basketball. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's probably the best way of explaining it. You've got this, a, a team that had amazing, amazing um, athletes and, 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 and uh, it was an amazing team at that point in time, but yeah. there, were, there were cracks in their armour that, that people were able to penetrate and to get up over it. It's, it's one of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities or experiences mm. um, and to be part of that team. As I, as I said, I mean, that, that team to me, Worlds in 2001, everything just gelled. from a a teammate point of view from a performance point of view and from an outcome point of view right yeah yeah absolutely Mm. well mate i love chatting with you i loved i love traveling the world with you you know um there's there's one thing that you can never take away from you is that you deserved every piece of uh stardom that you that you earned you know you were you were a legitimate star you were uh, you were um, certainly somebody that worked hard in the pool. Like I said, you worked hard in the pool. You got results and you partied hard, and so you were just a good person to be around all the time. You know, <laughs> what about that? What, what was the best party you ever been to, mate? Tell me that. Oh, any memorable? Yeah, there's a few good ones around Sydney 2000. <laughs> Sydney 2000 was fun. You remember that they had that? Uh, you know, the in excess was playing out at. Uh, what yeah, was yeah, the press club. It was yeah, the press yeah. club. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I tell you one of the best ones. Athens, two thousand and four. The first night we were allowed out, and we went to the Red Bull party. Do you remember oh, that one? Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> wild. <laughs> Paul Van Dyke played for five thousand people. <laughs> that was wild. Oh, a bunch of swimmers just just that yeah, when, that that Eamon Sullivan ended up in hospital. I think that's correct, but uh, we'll have to save that conversation <laughs> for another day. Yeah, yeah that's that very true. That's exactly true. <laughs> From there, I think we all ended up in Mykonos for a few days. Was that Mykonos was right? fun. Yeah, that was when we hired the, rented the mopeds and, and rode around but, Mykonos. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That yeah. was, uh, I mean, when you look back at some of those experiences, I mean, they're just, they're some of those experiences in life that you just, you just, um, you, you know, you look back at it and, um, you know, grateful that you, you had a good handful of people and like-minded people that you could uh, have a laugh with and, and let your hair down and get up to a bit of mischief. I mean, you know, there's, there's, that's that's probably... I remember laughing with um, a couple of my um, friends that play uh, rugby union here in... Oh, not here, but, but yeah. back in Australia. It's, yeah. um, you know, we, we have a look at, obviously, the crop of kids that are coming through today. And, you know, some of the, the challenges, obviously, they face. And, but one of the hardest things is, as we said before, that everyone, everyone unfortunately, is a reporter today. Yeah. So everyone's got a mobile phone. Everyone's got a camera. Your career could be ruined in two minutes. It was some of those things that we did behind the scenes and off camera. Yeah. Mate, that, that made that trip so much fun. And they're the things that you can laugh about and share those stories with. I, I think one of the saddest things in, in today's today's world is that a lot of those kids won't be able to get up to as much mischief as we got up to in those days yeah. you know, back in the day and that's that's just because of the way society is right so I mean, yeah. there's nothing against the kids it's nothing against the, the environment it's just unfortunately there's a, a different level of expectation and, and professionalism that's required um with uh, with today's environment and look it's no different to when we were we were coming up, what, what we were required to do was different to the guys that came through in the early 90s or the late 80s. It was totally yeah. different altogether, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah it was, uh, look, it, that journey was, was amazing to be, be a part of it with you and Clemmy and with all of those other guys. It was, uh, man, it was awesome. Yeah, it was good fun, mate. Well, listen, I appreciate you spending some time with us today, mate. Awesome. Um, Thanks, Hawkey. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's catch up again soon, all right? And uh, listen, take care and uh, get out of this quarantine as soon as you can, all right? Yeah, and you. All the best, mate. All right, mate. Take care. See you.